own question. Silly me. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And the working title for this episode is What If Everything You Knew About Teaching and Writing Was Wrong? But first, Chris, what you reading for? What you reading for? So fairly recently, I finished reading a book called Spell It Out by David Crystal. It is a really fun overview of the history of English etymology, um, everything from uh, Old and Middle English to the origins of letters to uh, the impact of the internet on modern spelling. Highly recommended. Um, it was recommended also to me by a must-follow Twitter account at Anne Phillips WA. What she doesn't know about etymology, morphology, etc., isn't worth knowing. I learn a great deal from what she's posts on Twitter. So yeah, I'd check out that book and I would certainly um consider following her Twitter account. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for? So I'm reading. Um, children's morphological awareness can the use of apostrophes and capital letters be improved through intervention and that's a it's a a thesis so not necessarily a research paper um by um a lady called uh, jessica evans um as we say it's no secret now we can talk about it um you know writing complete English. It's been good fun to kind of go down the treasure trove of finding uh, research papers that are linked to uh, various grammatical punctuation uh, bits and pieces that we're researching. And so what's quite nice about this one is obviously, you know, something like the use of apostrophe and, you know, children's use of capitalization it evidently isn't going to be well researched. So it's quite nice to find um, master theses because obviously they have to do like a, a literature review so I think that's probably like a research top tip if you're finding something that's really quite niche if you can find someone's like the uh, PhD or master thesis like part of that is to do a literature review you can just kind of follow their uh, reference lists that they do so yeah it's quite a little interesting bit of the history of the research on um, capitalization um, and obviously when we come to apostrophes I'll undoubtedly go to that as well because it'll be really useful kieran what are you reading for i've also got an english-based one today it's explicit instruction stage one retrieval practice 10 minute writes by tom needham i think it's maybe at the time of recording less than a week old this blog and he talks about how he gets his students to do these uh sort of intense 10 minute writes and sometimes they're looking at the what, what might the prompts be and I know, obviously, he when he speaks about writing, he's speaking to a, a secondary audience. But some of the stuff in that blog makes me think, might there be a place for this in, our, in the task that we set? And obviously, I'll let you guys uh, read that and come back to me on it. But uh, it, it, was, it was obviously Tom always writes really well. And I think there might be something worth uh, worth looking at if you're, if you're thinking about writing in your school. Just out of interest, I've got a, a, another top hack for finding research papers. 
on Scholar, you can ask for an email when a certain author has been cited. So for instance, you could type in Sweller and every time a paper is written, and you'll get emails like two in the morning, they, that every time a paper is written that cites John Sweller, well, then you get a you get an update, and then those papers are coming straight to you. So if you want to see, for instance, what direction the conversation around cognitive load theory is going, you can do that kind of thing. I mean, I've got some pretty niche emails set up, and I'm all like, oh, I'm never going to read these, but uh, but I'm sure in the future I'll use them. So this week, we're going to explore the teaching of writing. And we've touched on this slightly in the past, but I think the conversation is moving forward all the time. I think the approach to teaching writing seems to be moving in a direction that would be more in line with how I think it should be taught. And I think it's worth considering what you guys think, because obviously you, I sort of defer to your expertise on all matters, literacy, uh, literacy based. And I think probably makes sense to start with what are your guiding principles for teaching writing? So uh, I guess a first one would have to be for me um, the idea of focusing pupils' minds on the idea of what do you want to say, which sounds like a really obvious thing because, of course, when we are writing, we are expressing ourselves. But when you actually watch kids writing and when you actually ask them questions about what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve, so much of it is trying to perhaps um, focus on a particular type of sentence that they want to do or focus on a bit of vocabulary they want to include or trying to impress or trying to match a model text that you know the teacher has put on the wall that it can be often forgotten that they're trying to express something and that they've got this you want them to have this idea and that you want them to then express it and often there doesn't there sometimes isn't that thought first of okay what do I want to communicate and how's best to do it so constant gentle reminders around okay well what do you want to say can be i think a really valuable starting point for pupils nice yeah I, i've mentioned it i think a few times and on the podcast i think it's been a one of my what you're reading for and i've recommended it to chris a few times but Howell evans is um do i make myself clear super super good at uh really getting to the point of you know taking writing apart and being like, actually, like, how clear are you making it? Like, what do you actually want to write? What's the purpose of this? And how successful are you uh, being at that? And kind of, I think my first kind of principle, like links to that, I think. Um, and that's kind of almost like you would do with maths and this idea of, uh, you know, small steps, um, as we would do it in mathematics. I think, you know, you can definitely take the same approach, uh, you know, to writing. And I think on the same instance, it's that idea, you know, you have to walk before you can run. And certainly our approach to um, our kind of writing uh, curriculum, as it were, is definitely a, a walk before you can run approach where, you know, we're going to focus, depending on what it is, you know, predominantly at the sentence level of things to actually make children, you know, be able to really think carefully about what they can write about and to make sure that what's actually what they write, you know, is accurate and they have technical mastery over you know those core basic elements where full stops commas and stuff like that you know can dr dr drastically change the meaning of uh what someone's trying to communicate and if they don't master that early on then 
sure, you know, we've all taught up a key stage too, how the, the frustration we get when there's, you know, 10, 11 year olds who still can't punctuate a basic sentence with a, with a full stop. So definitely one of our guiding principles, you know, that small steps approach, as you would do in maths, you know, walk before you can run. Don't be scared to take time at that sentence level um, before you kind of feel pressured to get the pupils to write extended pieces. There's no reason to kind of feel that, you know, we're somehow doing them a disservice by, you know, not letting them write extended pieces, you know, quickly. That's not to say if a child chooses to do it at home, like obviously like, you know, crack on, but in terms of what we offer in our writing lessons, yeah, small steps, walk before you can run. What's the controversial thing you're worried about or you want to, you know, not worried, but you thought um, it's not usual. Is it the inclusion of subjects at the very early stage, as in the grammatical? Yeah, so as I say, as key stage two teachers will know, um, I think, yes, obviously the national curriculum doesn't, maybe it does stipulate by year group for grammar. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So um, in year six, in the national curriculum for grammar, it stipulates that at that point, students need to identify subject and objects within sentences. And you can argue over the definition of a sentence until the cows come home. But I think, you know, I'm assuming everyone here would be happy that for it, yeah, there needs to be some sort of, there needs to be a subject, there needs to be a verb that takes place within this uh within this group of words for it to be you know be a complete thought and a, and a sentence and so it's just wild to me that that basic fundamental concept of you know every sentence needs to have a subject is something that you then just kind of ask children to do when they're 11 years old when you'd like them to have been writing in you know full sentences and demarcating sentences you know ideally you know if you could get every child doing that by the time they leave you know key stage one every teacher would be you know, all over that I think so yeah the we say we're an academy so we're in a fortunate position that we can tear it up and rip it up and my honest advice would be if you're even in a, a, a local authority maintained school uh it you it pays dividends to focus on subjects and verbs and uh, predicates and all of that in interesting stuff early on just a, a little aside on that it's fascinating how the national curriculum in terms of, you know, um, expected terminology, as you say, doesn't require subject until year six, and yet does require an understanding of um, passive voice. And so it doesn't require subject and object until year six, but requires passive voice in either year three or year four. It's like, well, how do you understand passive voice without a discussion of subject and object? It just goes to show that it, it, the, the terminology in the national curriculum has just been thrown in there rather than actually thought through at least in that example but i probably think across the board yeah to in total agreement with you on that one one thing i'd add to the kind of small steps idea which is something i'm very much on board with is we often kind of avoid this small steps approach because we want pupils to be creating longer texts as you say but we don't necessarily need to be offering pupils the opportunity to create the longer text of the form that we are after through our education. It's perfectly possible to be teaching writing in a really sensible way and alongside that in, you know, whatever year group, be giving pupils some um, occasional opportunities for free writing because that's just a, a wonderful thing to do. And we sometimes I think get 
yeah, get lost around that and think that the only way to motivate pupils to write um, independently longer texts is to say, here is a longer text. It must look like this. Um, we want you to follow this kind of structure, etc. Actually, some opportunities for free writing, I think, goes a long way with that. Um, but I'm sneaking that in there because that's not one of my principles. Um, <laughs> kind of like my next principle would be um, make reading back, be it on a set, an individual sentence or a paragraph, make that a routine, make that a habit, because it takes ages to develop that habit with children. It doesn't happen in a few weeks. It doesn't happen in a half term. It takes, in, from my experience, a good few terms, or if not the whole academic year, before they are habitually reading back the sentence that they've wrote or reading back the paragraph that they've written before they you know write the next thing to make sure that it all fits together that they're you know they are maintaining a sense of flow so again being persistent with this idea of have you read that back does it say what you want it to say um yeah really focus on building that habit i think if you do if you achieve only one thing across a year with a group of writers getting them to think about what they want to say and getting them to um, consistently read back as they're going to check that the sentence does what it wants to do or the paragraph does what they want it to do, then yeah, you're probably not going too far wrong. So that'd be my next principle. Just on the side on that, I promise you, this isn't a, a marketing <laughs> episode at all for our um, writing curriculum, but um, as you may see kind of through uh, kind of roughly, consistent sort of objective layout we always ask pupils before that we ask them to write independently there's always rewriting sentences so rewriting sentences that have already been um done for them um, and that might be things like sentence combining and things like that so you've got like two um, main clauses and you know you need to choose the right coordinating conjunction to uh, put them together so you know before they even write their own sentence they have to read it. And then the next step after that is, you know, proofreading sentences. We'll throw in some tricky errors in there as well before they actually then come to then be like, yeah, okay, now you can write, you know, your own sentences in the, for the exact reasons, as you said, Chris, once a child's written something, the, uh, the motivation that they have to then go and reread it <laughs> and wanting to, you know, it's that idea, you know, uh, the task is completed. So therefore, I'm done rather than does the task actually uh, bring about what you've actually wanted them to do. So early days yet, yeah, but we say we kind of hope that that structure brings about that kind of, it is metacognition, I get at the end of the day, is that kind of metacognitive awareness of, of that. And I think linked before that as well, this is kind of our kind of second guiding principle. Um, it's just this idea of talk. The great thing about writing, what makes writing like so powerful and how it's different to speech is that ability to take some time to think about it. And evidently you use different, uh, you know, uh, structures of syntax to write what you want to do. And you can make yourself clear by spending that time to think about the position of words and how you structure those words and within those words within phrases and those words within sentences and all of that kind of thing and you know not having to do what we're doing right now which is you know we've got to have some notes but I haven't written these answers down far from it and as we all know when you have time to write something down it's far more coherent but obviously there are kind of things like that subordinate clause coming before the main clause naturally humans tend not to speak like that and so giving pupils that time to internalize that um you know kind of almost like you know, 
linguistic rhythm of what those sentences sound like, um, you know, we think is also going to be really beneficial for uh, you know, people to be successful writers, because if they can talk it, uh, you know, they can write it. And obviously, I heard the quote through Mary Meyer. I'm sure someone else knows where it comes from. But, you know, there's the idea that you know, writing flows on a sea of talk, which you know, I quite enjoy that um, that particular quote. But again, I apologies. I can't remember who said it off the top of my head. Which seems like a good time for me to kind of throw in one final principle. And again, nicely, it links to something that you mentioned there about uh, the writing curriculum that you're working on which is the idea of, it kind of where it links to this, this idea of editing. I always taught editing quite poorly, I think. I'd get children to write a whole text and then I'd say, okay, let's go back and change it. You know, I do editing and revising, uh, which is more about kind of content. And we just, it all just get kind of thrown together and it'd be this great big overwhelming task. And it was only when I broke it down and said, okay, putting aside the, like the writing of a text that you have done let's just look at what editing is that I started to get somewhere where I started to do lessons where we would say okay here's an idea you've seen something on a screen I want you to tell me what you saw and so the pupils would then write a sentence um, and then I would simply say okay wonderful now write it a different way it could be that the words are in a different order. It could be you start with a conjunction. It could be that there's an adverb at the start, whatever it is, just find a different way to put those words together and then write it again and then see which one you prefer. And then we do that two or three or four times. And this habit of recognizing that, you know, sentences are there to be played with, paragraphs are there to be played with, and that at heart, editing is looking at a sentence and going, is there a way to do this that I prefer? You can, I think you can build up that habit out away from, you know, the kind of more cumbersome, more uh, mentally taxing challenge of editing when you've got a whole text surrounding it. So my third principle would be, again, build habits around editing, but do that away from whole texts sometimes. So pupils get in the habit of having a go at improving an individual sentence. The one last thing to say that's nice about that is I think if you do that away from a text, it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. If that's the first line they've written in a story and there's another 50 sentences that come after that and you ask them to kind of think about how another way to write that sentence and you're doing that from the get go, it, they can start to think, well, do I have to do this with every sentence? How does this work? Whereas if you break that down, you're looking at kind of one sentence at a time, maybe something that isn't connected to something wider. It just takes the pressure off a little bit and allows you to them to play with the sentences in a uh, in a freer way. And you can do that, of course, not just with sentences, but collections of sentences, paragraphs, etc. So that'd be my third and final principle of the few that I'm going with now. My third one, and I've just kind of changed it slightly from what I think I mentioned earlier, but that's going to be the deconstruction and construction of writing models, because it's something that I tend not to, it's something I hadn't seen until I started working uh, within STEP and certainly hadn't come across this idea before, but it all comes down to this um, planning aspect. And I think it's quite common, perhaps in primary schools that, you know, you've, you've practiced a, a grammatical skill in isolation and you're now working up to this, you know, application task where you may then you know provide children with a, uh, a model text and then you kind of like go through all the features of what's in there and oh that's there and isn't that kind of nice and lovely and then you may get children to kind of like plan their own and then 
that may be on a planning template um and then kind of children go and kind of write their own we do it kind of slightly differently in that what we will do is that we kind of have a so forever writing outcome that we kind of plan for um we have an expectation that uh, teachers kind of write two models so obviously they need to use the grammatical features that they've been talked about uh, that they've been teaching about and then what they'll do is that they'll they'll have the model and what they'll do is that you know through that metacognitive talk they will deconstruct how that model fits within that kind of planning template so we do so you know very similar to you know that the classic story mountain where you start at the bottom for like the beginning and then rising action climax you know, resolution end that kind of thing so that might be you know one part of the session so they'll have that model story so they'll kind of demonstrate how you know right here's like the main idea from this paragraph and here's the supporting detail that supports you know the opening and etc etc and then what the teachers will then do so that is that they'll then construct their second model from that plan so they can kind of see that how that generic sort of ideas that may have occurred or that kind of those deep structure features that you might be using and expecting children to use within um, the models that you want that you expecting them to write how they've kind of been deconstructed into this planning template and then crucially how you then work with this planning template to make it a complete narrative or a complete kind of paragraph so you kind of have that that reversibility of and that kind of reciprocal nature between that what that planning and writing process we think becomes far clearer for children because yeah I've taught children where you know we've planned something we've put something in a plan and then the next lesson is right kids you know write the next thing and you know they've just literally written out their plan again and if I'm lucky they've written those notes in their plan in a full sentence and if I'm really unlucky they've just literally written out those notes <laughs> as a thing and then they come up to you it's like yeah I've finished so having that kind of dual process of showing kids right this is how this model fits within this text structure because obviously text structure is important and you know there's obviously the benefits from comprehension as well and then also that right case so this is how you would take this deconstructed model and how you would construct then another model and that's the important thing here you're not then writing that same model up again it's showing them how you've taken these this skeleton and how you've applied you know different flesh in that sense so and all of our um when it comes to those kind of application activities um all of ours kind of follow that kind of deconstruction construction uh model which we think is uh, particularly powerful to what extent does primary teaching of writing match with these principles so probably a sensible thing to do here Rob, is to i'll just Think I'll, I'll describe the three that I talked about there and how I think they play out. Obviously, major caveat here, this is just my experience and discussions that I've had with teachers. But that said, when it comes to this idea of supporting children to think about the key question of what do you want to say, I think teachers have some success with this. But if if my practice is anything to go by, then I think generally there's a bit of an overfocus on the idea of wanting to impress or wanting to match exactly what the the teacher has modeled so i don't think that um that that idea is that embedded in schools and if it is 
or if you're not sure about it, it might be a really useful thing to do to go to into writing lessons in kind of year five or year three. And as they're writing, ask them, like, what are they thinking about while they're writing and just get a sense. Are, are they focusing on what they want to communicate in a given moment and how they can best do it? Or are they trying to use whatever set of vocabulary is on the list in front of them? Or are they trying as close as possible to match whatever's on the wall? Um, you can get a sense of that pretty quickly. Um, so I, I'm not certain that that's particularly well embedded in most schools, but I'm sure that there are exceptions. Ditto with reading back. I think that's really variable. I've been in some year six classrooms where I've been astounded at how well the teacher has got children to um, to reread their work, to be focus on it, focusing on it on a sentence level and a paragraph level and really thinking, based on what I've written, what do I write next? Does it work? Does it fit together? And equally, I've seen classrooms with similar levels or with no, no re particular underlying reasons why that could not have been achieved where it isn't quite there. In terms of the idea of taking a sentence, writing it in different ways and the value of that, I've only seen that in one classroom other than mine. And that's the classroom that I stole it from. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that that, that might be. On some level, the idea of rewriting sentences, if we think about the kind of writing revolution style tasks that I think Neil alluded to earlier, I think that kind of stuff is, is about and it's increasingly about. But the idea of, say, here's a sentence, express it in a different way. Think about what we've learned, express it in a different way. Brilliant. Now express it in a third way. Now express it in a fourth way. Which one do you like best and why? Which one gets as close as you possibly can to the to the meaning and if you if it will if you will like the spirit of what you wanted to communicate there so yeah i don't know how common that is frankly um probably not as common as i'd like definitely one i think uh i'll be stealing and using that idea um it's hard to know um twitter is such a what is it five percent of all teachers if that now it's probably a little bit less but since various changes and stuff like that and who knows, maybe Mastodon has, uh, you know, 6% of teachers now, who knows? I think it's potentially could be more common than, you know, we think out there. This I think since, you know, cognitive load theory has kind of come to this point, I think people have kind of taken a step back and realized, gosh, you know, writing is such a cognitively complex task to do that, you know, we want, as I said, like, we want kids to be thinking about, you know, what am I writing and what am I trying to communicate by I think certainly the position that we kind of we we've taken on this is that kids could only kind of do that if they have you know mastery over you know transcription you know the handwriting they don't have to think about the how they form their letters to actually so they're not they can think about the content and not think about how do I form these letters and you know spelling and you know as we talked about you know sentence types do you want to use how do you want to compose this sentence what how do I punctuate the sentence correctly um so that's definitely where we want to come. We want to kind of create as much bandwidth, for want of a better word, that you know children can actually focus on on that. Um, I've certainly seen. I think Sophie uh, Bartlett and her colleague Rebecca. Um, you know, they've certainly written a fair bit about you know writing revolution esque type um, activities where you spend a bit of time, you know, really focusing on the sentence, and it feels it feels so obvious that you know why on earth are we not focusing on the sentence for far longer rather than getting children to write longish prose and when I say longish I probably mean you know anything that's more than you know 
two or three coherent sentences that would fit together. So I think, you know, there are some pockets of it. I think what makes it difficult for the teachers slash schools to adopt is, um, as I say, we use the uh, key stage one and key stage two, you know, not the stats, but, you know, the writing assessments at the end that come with that, you know, at the end of the day, they don't really, uh, you know, marry with what we think good writing teaching would actually look like. And, you know, evidently we're in a system and we have to play to that system. So I think, you know, I think it's out there um, to an extent. I think teachers, I think leaders probably do want to do it more. And I think teachers and leaders probably know that that's what that should be done. But I think that fear of uh, you know, key stage one writing moderation and key stage two writing moderation perhaps, you know, keeps them from not making that particular move. Talk, I imagine it's probably out there quite a lot. I think most people appreciate and realise that it's clear, it's obvious if you can't, you know, writing is the transcription of the written word. If you can't say it, you definitely aren't going to be able to uh, write it. And obviously, you know, props to... Uh, Pi Corbett and the you know the talk for writing team I've worked in schools that you know use that very effectively and you know kids really do internalize those sentence structures and then go on to use them effectively so you know if you're a talk for writing school you know you've been doing this for you know far longer than you know, certainly I, I don't know how long talk for writing has been around it's probably been around longer than I've been in teaching I would imagine um you know so yeah I think talk is up there again based on my personal knowledge of schools and how they teach writing this idea of, of like you know, deconstructing and constructing these models it's something that only i've ever seen done and uh within our you know our step schools um but again that is not to say that someone out there also hasn't had that idea of gosh yeah children really struggle to uh take their planning and write a uh, a narrative or you know write a piece maybe if we show them how we take it from the planning to that yeah I'm sure I'm, I'm thinking um you know in that book by Rob Smith you know modeling it great writing I think it is I'm yeah I haven't read it but I'm no doubt that in there he probably mentioned something of that so hard to know um I think many teachers would want to I think what Chris and I have said is wouldn't necessarily go against any other people's principles of how to do it. I think teachers would quite happily teach from these principles. If Chris and I were, I wouldn't, don't want to say fortunate enough to be asked to rewrite the writing curriculum for, you know, the national curriculum. I think we'd both uh, be quite weary of that task and the, the pushback that might come from that. But I would imagine most teachers would be happy to kind of go from these principles. Yeah, I, I think we'd both admit immediately that there would be many 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 other people far more qualified to do that than us but we'd like to contribute Don't get yeah wrong. um that but um on your point there i think what you said there about the kind of uh deconstruction and then uh, reconstruction i think the the reconstruction part of it so here's a plan it matches the text you're going to do let's how do i how do i create a model text from that i think that's really common but i think the reverse is really rare i think that's the kind of um, I've, I've uh, very rarely have I seen schools go, here's my model text, this, let, let me show you how I turn that almost into a plan. That version isn't done as much. The plan exists. Like people will say like, here's the model text. 
um and then here's a plan like a like a boxed up plan it's you know it's often called it is a boxed up plan we're going to go to uh, we're going to and that matches the modeling that i'm going to do i'm going to show you how i turn a plan into like a text when modeling i think that's pretty common from my experience but the reverse of that of the kind of how you create the plan i think that's uh, really yeah I'm, again there's nothing new in teaching someone out there's doing it but from my experience that's really rare and a really cool idea I mean, one of the things that stands out to me, and I don't know, I can't remember if we mentioned this last time, but I reckon most writing curricula are based around when are we teaching newspapers, when are we teaching instruction texts and that kind of thing. Despite next year being the 10th anniversary of the national curriculum. And every time I see text types coming up, I'm thinking this, this is the card leading the, the horse. And like, as you guys describe it, is a much more effective and efficient way of making proficient writers i think so i think the you know to what extent does primary teaching match these principles i was a bit reticent to call this episode what if everything you knew about teaching writing was wrong because i might be offending tons of people who have to live this is their lived experience every day and whether they want it or not you know so there's no malice intended there but i think you know life would be easier for teachers and more productive for pupils if, you know, the, the guardian principles you guys are mentioning were at the heart. So should we be able to write a new national curriculum? I'll take the maths. You guys can sort the English. Appreciate and then we can employ, employ a fourth person just to answer all the hate mail. <laughs> what role does modeling play in the teaching of writing? Because, um, I mean, you, you alluded to at the very start of your answer to that last question, Chris. And what advice would you give in this area? So modelling is obviously at the heart of, uh, of good writing, teaching. Uh, both the creation of a model in advance that you can pick apart, but also live modelling where you're talking through your thought processes. So you're, you know, you're teaching these to use Neil's expression, these like metacognitive aspects of writing, these strategies that we're employing as we're going along. Things like, I've written a sentence. Oh, hang on a minute. Does that say what I want it to say? Does this lead where I want it to lead? Oh, actually, I've missed out a word there. Let me put, pop it in. That kind of stuff. So modelling obviously uh, plays a central role in what we're doing. Kind of a slightly controversial point that I would make is that I think that... We, we don't use enough models in my experience. Uh, like in the last couple of years of teaching a um, in key stage two, because I moved down to key stage one after that, I worked with a group of kids who were struggling fairly significant with writing. And I had the freedom to experiment with stuff a bit more. And one of the things I experimented with was, well, if we are writing a short story and we want it to be, or let's say a story introduction, and the key thing we want is we want it to be um, haunting in some way. We want it to be like a haunting description of setting, but I don't want them just to copy what I did. I found that the kind of teaching that I used to do, which was, here's a model, let's pick it apart, and then let's um, look at another one, was fine but it was nowhere near as powerful as doing that alongside looking at three or four other models. Now, obviously, if you're looking at, you know, 600 word pieces of writing, then that's a bit of a challenge. But if you're looking at something shorter, you know, a couple of hundred words, 200, 300 words, then that's pretty achievable. 
and I, I, I came to the conclusion, I think, that we like, overestimate our ability to explain and to show um, using just one or two texts what the, like, the features and the, the key ideas of a text type are, or not just a text type, but the kind of feel, the kind of sentences, the kind of um, nuances that you want to get across. I think we overestimate our ability to explain that. And I think we underestimate pupils' ability to pattern spot if you show enough of them. So in short, I think one of the key things about modeling for me is the fact that you can bring a sense of uh, variation theory almost into the modeling that you do. You can show them five examples and one non-example of a haunting setting description. And because they see that, you know, one's in a haunted house, one's in a cave, one's somewhere else, and they start to they start to see the similarities. They start to see that the haunted house isn't necessary, but what might be useful here is darkness. They start to notice that actually the fact that someone's torch stops working, maybe that's not necessary, but what is necessary is a sense of is a sense of peril that comes about because of difficulties. And it's these patterns that they spot, the underlying similarities that they spot and the superficial bits that they can then change. I think they only spot that stuff if you give them enough models. So if I'd say one thing about modeling, it's that I would rather show kids six okay models than one or two that were really, really good. As long as, lo as, long as you're thinking about um, the intentional variation that you want to put into that mo those models so that you're showing them these, for want of a better word, key features of this kind of text, of this kind of writing, you're showing them through the similarities that are maintained across those texts. And you're showing them what they don't need to worry about so much, what they can play with by those are the things that you vary. So yeah, I think modeling has a huge role to play. And I think the variation within modeling is something that we haven't necessarily exploited as much as we could as a profession. Chris has stolen my answer. <laughs> I was just going through all the way, like just variation theory, isn't it? It's just like so much sense. You need to just throw lots at them. And obviously you need to you know, have those continue, have different models on that continuum of, you know, those boundary conditions of, you know, when it just is, when it, you know, is getting too far, everything in between, and obviously when it's not, and yeah, showing children what those look like. And that doesn't mean to say, obviously, that they need to pick apart every single one. You might you know, just kind of focus on picking apart one of those in detail, but, you know, you might then, well, that's where you want to be as primary school teachers. We're lucky, you know, your reading lesson for that day might just be, right, let's read these three or four different model texts and of, you know, say in this case, you know, haunted houses, whatever it might be, to that's what we're going to, the children know that's what they're going to focus on. And I think that comparative nature of, you know, um, this is what, um, I can't remember really what is it? it's like waggle and wabble, like what a good one looks like and what a bad one looks like, you know, and you can almost kind of put those into a, into a Venn diagram and then go like, oh, tease out, okay, what's the good one got that only makes it, you know, really excellent? What's the bad one got in it that really just makes it bad? But, you know, that crucial part is that overlap, you know, what do they both actually have that is, you know, quite, you know, important in this? So definitely um, model as much as you can. Again, that metacognitive thought processing is so important. And I think, you know, the elephant in the room there is the the behavior aspect. Kids 
needs to be able to sit and watch and listen for a good you know extended amount of time while you go through that process if you, you if children aren't at that point yet you um modeling a little bit whilst you know and trying to be metacognitive and that oh is there a thing there and you know oh maybe i should put another word in there and they can only hold attention for two minutes you're not going to get what you need so i can appreciate in some you know some schools that is you know particularly difficult um but um yeah it's well worth working out because i think you know we we know metacognition is important i think we downplay the fact that for that to happen particularly in writing you know there's a whole host of you know prerequisites that need to be done i would also kind of say it is important i um i'm not a gifted writer um i can't just turn up to a lesson and create like a, a model text out of a thin air i need to actually uh, pre-plan that within an inch of its life um to the point where i'll un unashamedly kind of you know have the model in my hand and i'll either if i can write it some uh, place it somewhere where only i can see it or you know not not afraid to hold it in my hand to make sure you know what i want to write is is accurate so that pre-planning of the models is super important i say i'm not saying that there aren't people out there who can't do it but I definitely need to because I think what with models as with kind of most things you know they need to be at that point where they're just out of reach so you know you've got to think really carefully I think about the vocabulary that you're using is it actually appropriate for you know year two year three year four year five children you know, the sentence structures if I haven't taught children that you can write a subordinate clause um first and then followed by a main clause if I haven't taught that yet I am not going to show that in my model I'm only going to show them the things that I know that they can do and the things that we've kind of you know been working on and I think you know I think you've got elements of the curse of expert there curse of knowledge it's really hard to write things that a one a year one year old might actually write <laughs> and that's where things like if you do um if you do get have um, no more marking, which some of our schools do, some of our schools don't. Um, those like packs that they send out at the end of each like national judgment, where it's like here's the top ten percent, the middle ten percent, and the lowest ten percent. You know, nationally that kind of gives you a, a useful range of a useful guide for yourself. You now, okay, this is roughly what you know children are capable of at different points. So, if I may, just yeah, just building on a couple of things you said there. I think one of the things about showing loads of models um, is that I would literally just show loads of models. I think the process, that kind of metacognitive, I'm writing it, I think I'd probably just do once or twice, like maximum. I, so in other words, if you want to make sure that people see a lot of different models for the kind of variation uh, purposes that we've described before, don't be afraid just to read those models, to show them and read them and then talk about them without necessarily kind of creating them on the spot. And even then, if you've got a class where you think, I do want to do some live modeling of text, but this is gonna take me 30 minutes to write. And I'm not sure that we're at a stage where they can um, sit and watch and explore and listen to me kind of talk about it. And we can ask questions and have back and forth. I'm just not sure they're quite ready for that. Don't be afraid to go all blue Peter and have one you prepared earlier. You know, you, I know I'm going to model the first three sentences. And then at this point, I'm going to click on whatever on my interactive whiteboard and says, and here's the rest of it, you know, 
and the three sentences magically that I've already written, because as Neil says, you've got often, if not always, you'll have something prepared in advance. So yeah, don't be afraid to live model none of it or some of it, um, or if circumstances allow and it seems profitable, all of it. Um, and as Neil says, I think the challenge is not pitching too high. The temptation to just write the most, write something really, really um, to like, the, well, to the level that you think you are capable of as an adult, that is tempting, obviously. But if you are teaching a year three class, you need to know what is a little bit better than they are currently capable of. And that's where you want your writing to be while still. And it, it's it's a tricky balance because even though you want in certain ways it to be just above, you also want it to be you know, flawless when it comes to sentence structure, sentence structure, grammar, this sort of thing. You don't want the kind of punctuation errors that you're likely to see in a year four or a year five piece of writing. So in some ways it is, this is a grown up piece of writing, but in other ways, in terms of sentence complexity, vocabulary choices, there you're more likely to be pitching it just, you know, somewhat above. The last thing I'd say in terms of modeling practicalities is again, it goes back to this idea of doing lots of models. Don't be afraid to spread this across days. So one of the reasons why I ended up with this, you know, approach where I had lots of different models for the same kind of text was that I had the usual timetable. Um, it was an hour, an hour long, and I wanted to look at different bits relating to sentence construction. And I didn't want to do that stuff for a whole hour because for practical reasons and release reasons relating to attention span and motivation. So I would spend a, a relatively, you know, a, a small chunk of the lesson, maybe a third or a half of the lesson looking at a model and then go, okay, so this is what, that's what we're learning about this week. Now let's move on to our sentence construction bit that looked a bit like the third and the seventh sentence that you saw in that model. And then I do that the next day and the next day. So not being afraid to kind of dis like distribute the practice over a week or two weeks, dis distribute this, um, their experiences of these models over a period of time. That's going to sound a bit um, unlikely to some teachers who are still in the frame of mind of, in this lesson today, we are doing this LO and that LO only. And then the next day we're doing a different LO and then the day after that. But, you know, I just think it's a really valuable way of going about things. With variation theory, obviously there are certain criteria that need to be met to get the value, or so the literature would suggest. For instance, the avoiding the transience effect. So for instance, if you were modeling and you were doing a comparison, you would need two examples at the same time. Is that what we're saying here? I don't know. Not in my case. Um, while I'm, yeah, so the metaphor of variation theory is somewhat loose. Um, I do generally think, though, that um, so, for example, the reason that people are able to recognize what a dog and what a dog isn't doesn't necessarily come about because they see two dogs next to each other. They're able to see one one day, one the next, one the day after, one the day after. And I'm still fairly confident that this pattern recognition, which is at heart variation theory, when they ha when an adult says to them, that's a dog, that's a dog. See that thing there that looks almost like a dog? That's actually a wolf. And there's a distinct reason for that. I don't think you necessarily need to see them side by side for it to for for that um, kind of same level of examples and non-examples pattern spotting to be in place. So what I really mean when I'm talking about variation theory there is the value of 
examples and non-examples and in particular kind of boundary examples so perhaps my use of the phrase variation theory is probably a little bit off there so i apologize to like the mathematics people out there and those who study it for other reasons um but yeah it's effectively that it's more about um for those people who know about uh elliot morgan's discussion and some of his previous cpd on like prototype theory and birdie bird <laughs> and that kind of stuff where he's talking about what makes a bird it, it's that stuff it's examples and non-examples and boundary cases and the value of those and how the value of those accumulates and if there's just a couple of them it's really it's much more difficult to spot the similarities and differences between what is effectively one group one concept that you're trying to convey which is to say obviously that you can't you can do what kieran has suggested and i have done um particularly uh, with the two kind of models at either end of the spectrum of you know a non-example and uh what makes a really good one and then you know put those together then diagram them and kind of you know work out draw that out but yeah perhaps maybe statistical learning is a better might have been a better metaphor for what we were kind of saying crisp than a variation theory they just pick up those statistical patterns of what oh yeah i can see this i can see this i can see this and then that kind of forms a an idea concept a schema of obviously not what a dog is but what what makes an effective uh spooky setting description i mean i don't think it devalues what you're saying at all chris i just wanted to make sure i understood and so that anyone else listening with less experience might understand but i think yeah um what you say is really clear and i could see i could definitely see the value um i don't think we'll have any letters coming in <laughs> from the from the variation community largely because they don't have my address so uh, good luck <laughs> Um, they have our Twitter handles. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, as if anyone could see any tweets these days. I keep seeing the most ridiculous things. <laughs> Which variation theory are we talking about? Are we talking about Mertens here? Or are we talking about Goose variation? So, you know, yeah, they can decide that. Yeah, let's not go there. I mean, we haven't done an episode on variation theory, have we? Probably never will. I mean, I'm not sure how much this recovered. There appears to be a bit of a trend towards a greater focus on sentence construction in general. You guys are saying things like the writing revolution you know the way obviously the work you guys are in a step and and the way this conversation's gone what are, the, what are the advantages and potential pitfalls of this i think obviously the advantage is that i say well the thing i mentioned it before that halcyon dream of a, an upper key stage two teacher not having a year six child who still can't do uh, you know capitalize the start of a sentence and punctuate the beginning of it and punctuate the end of the sentence i think it also then means as i said before you know thinking about how you might think of this in terms of cognitive load theory if you automatize these elements of grammar and punctuation through kind of deliberate practice at this kind of sentence level then you get what you it's um chris daisy's um marathon analogy isn't it it's a perfect one for this you don't get excellent excellent writing by getting kids to just you know do lots and lots of you know longish writing you do some you know you do the core body strength <laughs> you do I've, I've never run a marathon or trained for a marathon so this is by no means disclaimer here this is not <laughs> what an actual marathon uh training program would look like obviously you, you do core body strength you do you know some weight stuff you think about the diet as well and what you're eating and you know you do little bits short bursts right short bursts of 
running some short bursts of writing, longerish pieces of writing, but never actually the you know the finished. I know one thing I do know is that they say never run a marathon before you've actually run your marathon, if that makes sense in terms of the training. So I think from that, this is say so that analogy works perfectly here. The advantages I think are that you can get to where you want children to go as long as you actually have you keep that end game in mind i think uh one disadvantage or p- potential pitfall if you don't have that end goal in mind then you know you could actually have children who don't go through actually writing very much and then the accountability measures that come with that from you know writing moderation unfortunately there does seem to still be an idea of you know it's not explicit but uh kind of assumption that you know if you're just demonstrating a couple of paragraphs um for your evidence a moderator may go to you and say yeah but is that really sustained writing because there's that phrase there isn't there sustained and sustained means something different to loads of different people so i guess kind of just wrapping up that because i feel like i haven't explained that very well um the advantages are that it gets you where you actually want to go this idea of actually deliberate practice to provide pupils with that cognitive capacity to think about what it is that they want to write and how they want to write it um, which is obviously you know what we want and what we want writers to be um a potential pitfall um obviously you know, keep your eye on that end game you are expecting them to run marathons so you need to let them run the marathon if you only keep them on the on the training program um you know that's not going to be helpful yeah, I'd largely echo lots of that. Um, I think there there are bits aside from that as well. So one of the things when I talk that I hear when I talk about this idea of focusing on sentence level or paragraph level, but particularly the sentence level, is people saying, "Oh, how? What, what about expression? What about creativity?" And the thing that I kind of want to say back is that well, the unit of expression is not the text. Not always. It can be. That's one way of expressing yourself with an entire text. But the unit of expression could be a sentence. The unit of expression can be um, a phrase. It can be a short paragraph. You don't have to write a whole text in order to achieve a goal, to express yourself, to be creative. So I think there there needs to be a mindset shift about what sentence construction is, because I think there's like, and this kind of ties into the negative side of it, which is that I think some start to think about sentence construction as like only the like the, the basics only the nuts and bolts that lead somewhere and, and it, it absolutely is that it really is it is useful to think of that as the components that build to some something bigger and in that sense i absolutely echo what neil says i'd also kind of just add on to that and i know this is something neil thinks as well because we've had this discussion before but as well there is, you know, writing is the construction of the sentence as much as it's the construction of the whole of the whole text. So, yeah, like the expert writers, they are still agonizing over sentences. They're still writing on the level of sentence by sentence by sentence. It's not that they're so expert now that they're just thinking about what the chapter's going to look like and how the plot's going to develop. No, 90% of what they're doing is still on the sentence level. So, we need to rethink how we teach writing around the construction of sentences, not just as a preparation for something larger, but because that's what writing is. Because you, because um, 
the unit of expression isn't only the text. You know, the, the sentence really is in and of itself a powerful unit of expression. And um, yeah, that's something I firmly believe. I think I managed to get the letter P at the start of 11 consecutive words in thinking to be about primary mathematics. That's the kind of level I'm thinking when I'm writing a text. How, how long can this alliteration be? You know, obviously, Bojack Horseman, and they have quite, uh, quite sort of sharp bursts of this alliteration that will last for, for maybe upwards of 30 seconds. And I think, oh, God, how can I recreate this? But if I had my time again, I would definitely be thinking along the, the lines of the sentence. I suppose I've got quite a large piece of writing to do in the, over the next two and a half years. So perhaps it's come at the right time, this lesson, because yeah, the person I used to be, or the writer I used to be, and the writer I am today has definitely changed from meeting and talking to you guys. Yeah, I mean, if you take the first letter uh, of every paragraph in my book, um, they make an anagram, which altogether is an anti thinking deeply about primary ed education screed. Um, I was angry with you at the time. I can't remember why, um, but yeah. So, so just, a, just a lovely little Easter egg for people interested. That's okay. Cause if you read my book backwards, you don't want to know what it says about you, Chris. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> a bit left out now. <laughs> don't worry, Neil. Whenever your curriculum book comes out, I'll, I'll, I'll put messages in it too. Whenever I'm doing the proofing. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Neil Armand is the only um, non-education researcher that's in my index. And if you you'll notice that it's page 666, despite the fact that the book only has 192 pages. So, yeah, yeah. Mr. I'm not a good writer, but has probably the most successful blog out of all three of us here today. You know, not that my blog was ever in the same league as you two. There's tons to think about there, particularly on a classroom level and on a subject leadership level. And even perhaps from a school leadership level, you know, I think if you're thinking deeply about your approach to writing, there's tons to take away there. Even if you don't want to change everything overnight, yeah. some, of those, some of those guiding principles could be really helpful in the short Thanks. term. All I said to do is say thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Neil. Loved it. Thank you so much. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.